Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Queensland Academy of Sport, Chris Gaviglio. Thanks for tuning in to episode 333 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to get Chris Gaviglio on this episode today, and it's all about blood flow restriction training. So from a strength development point of view, from a conditioning point of view, and obviously from a rehab point of view as well. So we start off this discussion with Chris, and bear in mind this is only the second person, second coach who's mentioned this after Stephen Patterson, who is a leading researcher in this area featured probably two years ago now. So this is an updated version coming from a really specific coach's angle as well. So we kick off with what is blood flow restriction training? What is BFR? A pre-implementation checklist that Chris goes through before implementing blood flow restriction training. So a really easy way to kick off. Then we have a little chat around protocols, pressure recommendations position and exercises, um, hamstring protocols for strength development. Then we have a little chat around conditioning and then finish off with rehab, which includes a bit of a chat around uh, Achilles and also bone healing as well. So a really interesting episode coming up with Chris. So if you haven't dived into the, 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 the world of blood flow restriction training, it's super, super interesting. Hopefully this, hopefully this episode will kick you off nicely. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organisation, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. 
AMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Chris Caviglio. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, or evening for Chris, I'm, I'm welcoming Chris Caviglio. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me along and uh, hello to everyone out there. Thank you very much. Two podcasters getting together, it's always an interesting one. It's taken, taken me 20 minutes to get past the what microphone have you got and what what system do you use to actually uh, to actually get to the introduction. So thank you very much for coming on, Chris. But if, if anyone doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, education, and, uh, and what you're currently doing? Sure. My main role is a strength and conditioning coach. At Presently, I'm working at the Queensland Academy Sport in Queensland, Australia. The two sports I predominantly work with is track and field and also beach volleyball. Really exciting at the moment. We just had a competition at the end of last year and two of the decathletes that I work with qualified for the Olympics. And one of them, who's 20 years old, just broke the national record by two points. It was a 21-year-old record, 20-year-old athlete. He ran 10.35 in the 100. 45 8 in the 400 this is after this is after four events on the second day uh world-class athlete well both of them are world-class athletes so really exciting to be working with athletes like that but anyway digressing a little bit uh so my my background i did human movement sports science uh in brisbane and this was i wanted to become a strength coach and this was at a time where there wasn't a lot of full-time jobs out there. So I probably would have worked four or five jobs, you know, get up at 4.30 in the morning, be somewhere at five, personal trainer, working at a school, uh, working at another school, uh, doing some of my own stuff in my own backyard and so forth, and just slowly built over time. And like everyone, you finally get the first big break. I worked with the Wallabies rugby union team in 03 during the World Cup in a part-time basis, and then got my first full-time gig after, I think, over six years of just little part-time gigs, went to Bath in the UK. Never been to the UK in my life and everyone said, oh, it's a lovely place. And, and you know, and fair enough it was. It was, I was just really lucky, like beautiful town, but beautiful people. And I think that's what yeah. made the, the journey and the time. Well, we went for two years, stayed for six, could have stayed for longer. Probably the UK winters uh, made it a little uh, decision to come home a little. Ground you down. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> And look, during that time was probably that transformational time for me. I, I met some people through UK Sport, uh, Professor Christian Cook, who prolific in the world of sports science um, through genetics, salivary hormones, Scotty Draw, who was UK Sport as well, and just met a lot of people through that network uh, on top of Bath Rugby. So then started to do some saliva work with the rugby union players at Bath 
Bath Rugby and did some other projects as well, like passive heat maintenance, um, some of the talent ID work with their skeleton um, program as well. So really fortunate to meet Christian and, and, as I said, really pivotal. So we did some pilot work with some saliva and then we said there's some really interesting concepts here and then we did our second year of analysis and then I ended up formulating that into my thesis. Um, as I said, I had enough of the UK after a while, so I came back to Australia to complete my thesis and worked in AFL um, with the Gold Coast Suns in their first three years and then moved back to the Queensland Academy sport where I'm, I'm currently there. And also on top of that, um, if you're a rugby league fan, I also work with the Queensland State of Origin Maroons team so that for the last five years and in the first uh, the three years we had, we won. And then in the last year we won, or this year, last year we just won as well with a new t new coach and a new young team. So really good coaches, good experiences. And, and for me to be able to be at Bath, where I was in that real kind of team environment to now work with a lot of ind individual athletes, it's quite nice to touch back onto team sports just for like those three and a half weeks during the year. So really grateful for my work to enable me to do that. So that's pretty nice. much, yeah, that's pretty much my journey. I, and then on top of that, look, I'm a pretty inquisitive mind. I think entrepreneurial is probably a, a way to, to put it. You know, I have a couple of podcasts as well because I, the reason why I started doing that is, is that I stopped reading uh, journal articles and I felt like I stopped learning intellectually. And I just said, well, how am I going to force myself to do it? So I did it with a mate, Jared, and we started Snippet Sports Science podcast, which was we had to read journal articles and then basically like journal club or book club, just report on it. And, and on top of that, I've created a few little products. Uh, one's a, a lumbar thoracic wedge, uh, which started off the idea of creating products. And then when I was in the UK and I met Christian, uh, which we're going to talk about BFR in a little bit, is that he handed me an inflatable cuff and said, what do you know about this? And uh, I didn't know anything about it. And I said, well, I toddled off and I started reading about it. And it, it wasn't very popular at that time. And we had um, a South African 10, Butch James, prolific uh, rugby union player, did his fifth ACL. And we said, well, wow. there's, there's, a, there's a bit of evidence to say that it could help. And I was, I was making it up according to what I was reading. And this is back in the day where we were using absolute pressures. We were just picking a pressure of 140 mils of mercury. There was no individualization. It was just away we go. And all I just remember him saying is, is these are the biggest quads I've ever owned. Um, <laughs> and from that point forward, it came back to Australia. I was saying, where'd you get those, uh, those cuffs from? And, and there were, I don't think there was, except for Katsu, uh, the Japanese brand, there was nowhere where you could go and buy something off the shelf already created. So that started my entrepreneurial journey into the world of blood flow restriction to where I am today. That's class. How you, I'm always interested how people got that first job, that part-time role at the Wallabies. How did that, how did that come around? Just, um, just having a good network. I, th I think we speak about having mentors and networks yeah. being really important. And it was actually my my strength, my throws coach. I used to throw shot, put in discus a little while ago, and he introduced me. And the the strength coach at the time, Jason Weber, who's you know is quite well known in the SNC community, um, 
he saw me lift and with the focus and the intent of when I lifted and you as a strength coach as well or a junior strength coach, he said, that's what we need in the Wallabies environment. So he wanted to bring that in. So it's just a lucky break. Uh, and nice. Yeah. And then Scott, who was my coach, who got helped get me the Wallabies gig, um, then he got offered the job at Bath and said, well, I need someone to come with me. And, you know, it's, it's that thing. You create relationships with people. You create trust. And then you say, that's the guy I want to work with. And, you know, I got the lucky break and like everything, once you get your, your your first big team, that obviously shows that you've got a level of integrity and professionalism that other clubs and other other people want to uh, obviously have a part of. And, and that just makes it a little bit easier. AFL was really interesting because I didn't have a background in, in Aussie rules. So it was a little bit of a lucky break. And I was really honest and said, look, I know nothing about Aussie rules, but I can help give you an athlete so you can go and do what you want to do. And I was really, really upfront. And, you know, it's amazing what you learn in one year, two years. Um, even like when we have interns who come and work with us and you, you kind of think, how much learning are we giving these young people? I think actually sometimes them just being in the environment and ensuring that we're obviously given the right kind of questions and, and, and the right learning points that just by being there and picking stuff up if you have the right person on board that you just you're just absorbing so much stuff that you, I, th I think it's pretty hard to quantify if you if you want to write it down it's, it's so interesting that that story of the, the wallabies and just being the right place at the right time because when you if you someone look at your if a young coach would look at your cv they'd go wallabies bath ooh, it, it's like a, a progression it's this this you know, natural, natural evolution and things just, oh, things just fell in place. Look at that. It went from there. But actually, when you look at the, the source, the source was you been in the gym, lifting well and getting the attention of, of Jason. And then there, things come off the back of that. It was, it's not this perfect, you know, my CV was great. Cover letter was great. Sent it in, got into it. Like, it's just not that. And I think, People do get the, look at people's CVs or LinkedIn profiles and see this kind of easy, logical step by step to where they've got and go, yeah, that that's that that's out of my reach. But actually, it's just that little spark at the start just sparks the flame and it kind of rolls on from there to a certain extent. I found that in, I found that interesting. Everyone's got that story, and I think it's so it's so important that them stories are actually shared to give hope and. Um, encouragement to, to people who are wanting to get that first step on the ladder. Yeah, definitely. And I think also people forget about the story behind the first one. Like the first one, everyone hears, hears wallabies and that they forget that, you know, I was up at four in the morning, you know, to be at my first job. And then I'd done two jobs by the time it was six thirty, seven o'clock. And then I was trying to be an athlete, pseudo athlete. So I'd go and train and then I'd be fitting stuff in wherever I can. And, to look for opportunities wherever they are. So whether it's a school or, and this was before, you know, schools had full-time S&C coaches, uh, you know, I was just working there part-time. So it wasn't quite a regular thing as it is now, That now it's actually quite a good, you can get a really good job, you know, at most schools around the world actually. And, you know, it's, I talk to a lot of young coaches and I say, just coach, just get ex multiple experiences with multiple people, you know, work in places where there's no equipment where you've got to go out and you'd be resourceful. And, you know, I used to 
you actually at the time before the internet took off and there's so much journal stuff, I, I used to go and sit in the Academy of Sport library and I just used to read all the strength and conditioning journals and go, oh, that was really interesting. I used to write notes down that, and I've still got that, my little encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah, and I used to write notes because it was, you know, you couldn't just um, download it as a PDF and store Take it. Take a picture of it and take it home. <laughs> and store it on Dropbox. Um, but Dropbox wasn't around at that time, um, you know. So the accessibility to, to articles, I, I remember having to pay $20 for a Pilates article because I couldn't get it and and, and now it's commonplace. So, uh, you know, just willingness to learn. Uh, you know, I think was was key in coaching experiences, and I, I just can't emphasize it enough for for anyone starting out there. And if you know, personality is you know is, is key forming relationships. So when when I'm thinking of someone all the time, it's like that person is like, do I want to go have a beer or a coffee or um, you know just call up the phone? That's that's the person I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah. So just moving the chat onto blood flow restriction training, and it's something that. I spoke to Stephen Patterson about, who was actually my lecturer at, uh, at university. That was quite a while ago, and it good to get a bit of an, an update on, and, and obviously um, your thoughts on it. But before we start, blood flow restriction training, what is it? Yeah, so blood flow restriction, or if you're looking out there, katsu is the Japanese version. I mentioned that earlier. Ischemic occlusion, occlusion training. They're all the names that, that go uh, by it. So essentially what it is is like wearing a blood pressure cuff or, or a strap on either the arms or the lower body and you're partially occluding blood flow to the limb. So what you do is you usually, in practical BFR, they actually just strap it up and you see a lot of them on the website or you'll have a cuff where you're manually inflated um, and, and it is just a blood pressure cuff. Um, either on the upper or the lower body. So, so what you're doing is, is that by partially occluding the blood flow, you're restricting the venous return of blood from your muscles. So once again, the blood flows freely into the muscle, which is the arterial blood flow, but you're restricting it coming back out. So when this happens, because you have the restriction of blood flow, you have less oxygen. As a result, you have this creation of a hypoxic environment and you have this increase in metabolic stress. And that's probably one of the key factors here. So when we go to the gym, we normally use load, which is mechanical stress. Here, we're creating metabolic stress. And that's the key factor in all of BFR. So before anyone dives into BFR, because I'm sure there's plenty of people who just throw it on and let's get the job done. And I'm guessing that probably in the early days that, like you mentioned, I mean, it wasn't as as, as down and dirty as that, but I suppose the, the, the normal gym goer or someone that's trying it out may dive into that and um, maybe need, just need some guidance. I'm just thinking, is there anything that like a checklist of uh, that people should be going through before implementing or thinking about implementing this? What, you know, the points that people need to consider before throwing it on themselves or someone else um, and getting cracking. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of the the issues around BFR, and I think when you hear the word blood flow restriction, uh, it probably puts a lot of people off because you think, oh, we're restricting blood flow. And um, the, the world of Katsu has a lot more information that BFR 
does not deliver. And, and I'll go a little bit into this, which I think it'll make it a little bit easier. Um, but, you know, in terms of things that we want to be looking for, it's around abnormal acute physiologic conditions. So, you know, people have acute thrombosis, acute inflammation, uh, unclear tumour status, uh, issues with the cardiovascular system, such as if you have acute myocardial infarction, unstable angina, uh, ventricular tachycardia, arrhythmias. So you can see there's you know, issues with the heart, which is going to have issues with blood flow. And then also other contraindications is, is uh, elements such as pregnancy. If you have just even just more uh, acute things such as subjective uh, tiredness from it. So if you have, you're obviously going to be tired from, from doing BFR, but if you have large amounts of fatigue from it, you might need to consider. And also, I guess, around that mental factors and the response, because there have been a few people that have done it and they just haven't liked the restriction of the cuffs. And then that excessive feeling. I think that's where it's really important on how you introduce the BFR to the user the very first time, um, as opposed to, as you said, just put it on and away we go. And I think that's been the major problem is, is that you have some cowboys out there. We just we just got to put it on. We're looking for a 7 out of 10. We're just looking for the pump. More is better. And more is not better. Uh, definitely not. So, so when it when it oh god mate sorry Karen yeah so I, I, th I think a really good one is in the world of cats they have this five point system which which I think is really good so you have a you know your, your first thing you always do is just your general subject subject and uh, lifestyle contraindications so you go through that. Um, and then the katsu, I just want to talk about that a little bit. Now, I have done not done a katsu course, but I've actually read a fair bit. And they have a five-point system. So with the higher the number of points, the greater the risk. And so if you have five points more, you avoid katsu. Pregnant women, as I said, they may have impairment of the coagulation system. So it's avoided in principle. So when you look at the contraindications there, if you have a history of deep vein thrombosis, any sort of thrombotic tendency, uh, that's five points. Pregnant women, four points. If we keep going down the list, we have varicose veins of the legs, although no negative reports. Typically, we say no, but that's three points. If you have prolonged immobility, any kind of heart failure, I have three. And you just keep going down, you have elements in two and in one. So what it does is it takes more factors together, which then you then add them up. And then if you have five points or more, then that's a conversation that you would then have with your doctor or your uh, BFR professional. And then you would then, it creates that conversation going, is this the best thing for the for the client that you've got or for the athlete that you have? And then you might then say, well, safety says that potentially the risks of it outweighs the benefits of it. Um, so that's a really good way of doing it. I don't think there's definitely once one way that you know, there's been a consensus that that's how you have to do it. So I quite like to use the five-point system and, and they fit in really well with all the other uh, current BFR articles that are out there around the safety systems. So like talking about, you know, the heart, the cardiovascular system and so forth. So being really aware of those factors is, is very important. Where has the research gone in terms of this? Because I, I, get, I get the impression that, that BFR within rehab 
is is where a lot of the the work is and where people maybe gravitate towards is is that just me and what and what you know where, where i've di- directed my attention in the in the research and then we're moving now towards strength development and and other uh, other ways we can use BFR, but did it did it kind of get traction in the in the rehab space? Oh, it, it predom- yeah, you're correct. Predominant yeah. predominantly, everything is in the rehab space because when we look at it, you're lifting loads of twenty percent of one RM. Um, and then also when you think about the, the subjects that you're getting, very often do we get elite athletes or highly trained athletes to do anything? It's starting to move. There's been one article on high load lifting. There's some some um, work in high load uh, anaerobic type or cardiovascular based activity. If we can kind of split the the strength from the conditioning, there's been a bit of work there. I think people have been a little bit afraid. I don't know if that's the right word to do peer reviewed research in that um, in, in with high loads, higher intensities. But I do know there are pockets of coaches out there in the world. And I can't remember this one podcast where he was talking about his sprinters and, and they're actually out there and they're doing their run-throughs, tempo-based work with um, BFR cuffs. So I think they just wear straps on um, and doing that kind of work. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of pockets and, and a lot of people are tending to firstly say, so, so whenever I have a discussion about, the use of BFR predominantly in a rehab space because everyone thinks you know that they want to do high intensity. And I think one thing that I always say is that in elite athletic space, load is still king. That nothing will ever replace that. But using BFR wisely, you can actually help enhance the response of your higher load or high mechanical stress type sessions. Um, but everyone wants peer-reviewed research saying, where's the paper? And sometimes there is no paper out there that will say that this will work because as with everything, there's responders and there's non-responders. Um, there was a there was an article on the use of, hopefully I'll get this right. Uh, it was, yeah, it came out all over Twitter. Type 2 um, uh, BFR increases type, type 1 muscle fibers and decreases type 2 muscle fibers in powerlifters. But when you read it, they were powerlifters. They were squatting, I think, up to five times a week, which it, the athletes I work with, they're not squatting. They're not they're in the gym. The, the athletes I work with are four times a week. They have two lower body sessions. They only squat once in a week. They do lots of uh, Olympic lifting and single leg work and so forth. So I don't think it's really an, ath- uh, uh, an athlete's program. And when you actually looked at the graph, the graph was really good. There was responders and they had some of them, type two fibers were significantly increasing. So you need to dig a little deeper into it and not just read the abstract or read the title and just freak out. Um, And you really need to, with this type of work, it is kind of individual, I find. So move away from the the rehab. We'll we'll come back to that, 100% come back to that. But from a non rehab setting so strength development which you've mentioned there with your with your dick athletes what would be the the triggers for you to include bfr within a program what would be the again what would be the checklist okay ticks that box ticks that box we want that 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 equals bfr is needed what would be that kind of process for you to include it yeah um typically if i'm not getting any movement in more traditional type strength training so 
we would normally go down the high loading greater than 80% of RM. So I'll use it for pain, for tendons. Uh, so one athlete, the, the athlete I spoke to around 10.35 and 45.8, he had this ongoing uh, patella tendonitis for ages. And then um, I, I did a presentation for on Alex Natira's um, new, new concept on this. And for six weeks, because everyone thinks, oh, all I do is I stick cuffs on people. So I said, right, I'll, well, we'll do six weeks of traditional high load isometrics and, and, the, and the added eccentric work. And he still had pain. And part of it was technically driven of what he did on the track, given that. But he, we still couldn't knock the pain out when he was in the gym. So I said, right, let's, let's just add the cuff. So he was doing single leg uh, eccentric squats. First set, pain went from about a 6 out of 10 to about a 2 out of 10. Second set, pain totally gone. So we then just included BFR on all his performance lifting, squatting, step-ups, um, single leg squatting, and so forth. And he found he was lifting just as much weight with them on than when he was off. He just had this feeling of support activation and when you listen to you know when you listen to the athletes you i think it's probably like you know when do you know when you do it when you listen to the athletes and you go i need a new stimulus i need something a little bit different is this the tool and once again in an athlete in in anything really you know whether it's um this or complex or or foam rolling or art it's like it's a tool on the toolbox and you've got to know when to use it um so there's another athlete who um what I call a hard gainer. So at the end of, and he struggles with high load training because they're already doing lots of training. So we'll add it in as finishes at the end of a session when we want to do two sets instead of three sets. We want a little bit less load because, you know, any more load and, and the guys won't be able to go and do his training in the afternoon. Uh, we have another athlete who had a little bit of bulge in her disc in her back. So it's like, well, we need to just, I still need to, I still need a huge response from um, from a pathways point of view. So we speak about like high mechanical load and the responses from that from a pathway activation, which I didn't go into. The there's usually five uh, the five main reasons why BFR works, and light load BFR activates similar pathways as high load lifting. So rather than just lifting light weights, squatting and retraining the technique and the athlete getting nothing out of the session. And I think that's like when you train, you want to feel like you're training. You feel like you have a response from a muscular a physio or physiological, even a, you know, a, a psychological like, wow, that was a good session. So you can actually, so when you put them on your quads and you're squatting, you're going, I feel like I'm training. I feel like I'm really doing something here. And then we're actually able to reload the body safely, but still from a, pathway point of view uh, or muscle activation point of view get a response um, also one of the so one of the other benefits is is increase in, in anabolic hormones um, so testosterone growth hormone which is fantastic so a, a recent concept is around the ideas of hormonal priming and competition so when we wake up in the morning our, after 30 minutes after waking, our testosterone is nice and high. And as the day increases, it naturally declines. So the, the issue here is, is though, our finals are in the afternoon. So if testosterone correlates really well with strength, speed, power, 
also correlates really well with positive behaviors of determination, um, attention, um, willingness to, to try hard, aggressiveness in some sports. And you think about rugby union. So how can we improve that graph so we haven't got that natural decline and usually we do something in the morning or we could acutely do something just before an event there's actually been a bit of work with christian cook around hormonal priming and it's quite a popular topic at the moment so potentially you could use it as a tool prior to competition to hormonally prime your athletes so rather than going in and doing a short stimulus in the gym using high loads we can now do something with low loads and when you think about when athletes travel sometimes they just don't have access to to equipment and so how can you therefore create that correct environment for them to get the correct stimulus to get the correct response with no equipment and that's where if you're a responder something like bfr add some bands uh alex like i loved alex natira's um isometric work with the straps uh you can take strap band bfr and you have a gym where you go Interesting. So, so how would we how would we program BFR? So, what kind of exercises would it be a normal program, but with with a cuff on, or was it would be isolated exercises that you would program with the cuff? De- depends on what you're really trying to get out of them. So, if they okay. if they have a so if you look at when you go in the gym, you have your warm up. So, I look at how can I use it in a warm up to activate the muscles. If you have any soreness or pain or tendonitis, we want to decrease that. So we want to use the use that to decrease. So one of the many benefits of BFR, which I don't think gets enough attention, is attenuates joint and tendon pain. And the good thing with BFR is, is that typically everyone thinks that it just works distally from where the cuff is placed. So if you have them on your thighs, everyone just talks about it just works on your quads. And then if you see people with them on the arms, all you do is you see them doing bicep curls. I know you get a good pump doing bicep curls, but it's really the key with BFR is the exercises or that stimulate the muscles that you want to get the change in. So if you want to get changes in your calf, you put them on your thighs and you do calf raises. Really cool study on – you don't mind me jumping around like this? Of course not. No, no, no. Feel free. It's great, Chris. It's brilliant. So there was a really cool study on looking at healthy Achilles tendons, though, and they did a 14-week study, traditional high load, 70%, and then low load, 20% standing and seated calf raises. And then every four weeks, they retested their one around, but they actually increased it slightly. So in the BFR group, they started at 20%. And they went up 5%. And in the last couple of weeks, they got up to 35%. And traditionally, we would say high load strength training is needed to create any kind of change in the tendon. With low load BFR, they had changes in Achilles' cross-sectional area and also strength, the force that they could produce. Hopefully, I've got this right. Uh, and they also had changes in, in calf size as well. Other studies to illustrate this is on the quads, squatting, changes in hamstring, but also glute circumference. Uh, on the arms, bench pressing, they had changes in chest size or cross-sectional area, um, and then also in, in increases in strength as well. So what that says is that 
if you want to elicit a change or you have an injury or you want to focus on a body part to get a, a change in strength, size or force production, you need to be smart with the exercise that you give the athletes. So it could be hip thrusters, do hip thrusters with them on because we really want to focus on that hip extension and the glutes or squats. Because I think what happens is that in academia, you need to keep it really simple because it needs to be reproducible in a large group of subjects. So therefore, it's easier if we want to look at lower body changes, we do leg extension because we can really control that or squats. And we look at the quads because that's where we're feeling it. Whereas some researchers are now starting to look, you know, um, not just uh, distally, but also proximally looking at, uh, and they're starting to get a little bit deeper with the mechanistic um, effects of why it's, why it's really happening. And I think that's, and how do we then, I think it's moving into responders and non-responders. So how do we know that it's the correct protocol? I think that's where a lot of the research is, is going towards trying to understand safety mechanisms and, and so forth because it, it's so much information out there on low load stuff low intensity work there's not a lot on that that high-end stuff from a peer-reviewed uh viewpoint so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Chris. I hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we move on to have a little chat around conditioning. Again, pressure and protocols. And then have a little chat around aerobic versus sprint protocols and using blood flow restriction training in both of them and how they differ. Then we finish off with where we started really, which was the, the rehabilitation angle and the use of BFR in rehab and how that how BFR can affect bone healing um, and tendons as well, which is a, a big use case for BFR, as Chris has mentioned. So really, really interesting part two coming up with Chris. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. 
So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So, so when it comes to, to pressure recommendations and, and still going on the performance, strength development side of things, is there anything that you'd recommend there to give people a nice little guideline of, of what they should be, where they should be going with the pressure? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a great question. And a little while ago, there was a huge debate. In, in my opinion, there seemed to be a lot of debate going around, especially on social media, about you know who's got the best pressure calculation. And when you look at the ways of doing it, I'm going to actually be the gold standard is limb occlusion pressure, where you use a Doppler ultrasound. Uh, so you'll inflate the cuff, and then you'll put the Doppler at at either end of the limb, so if it's upper body, it's on the wrist, uh, down at the ankle if it's the lower body, and then as the cuff gets to a certain pressure the ultrasound will pick up no pulse. Now, from that, you can then understand where your occlusion pressure is at. Other ways of doing it, and well, I'll just move on to the other ways and and then how they calculate it from that. So, and then from that, there's there's other ways. So, Jeremy Lenecki, now hopefully I pronounced his name correct. So, he's he's, he's the man in terms of, you know, who's producing papers, He's producing tons of papers, and it was a great paper or a couple of papers about using a theoretical equation, um, taking into consideration blood pressure, but also limb circumference, which when you start to think about limb circumferences, if we're looking at the amount of occlusion pressure we need for, even if it's total occlusion, if you have a bigger thigh, you need more pressure than someone who has a little tiny thigh and, and upper body and so forth. So starting to take into factors such as limb circumference, so using a theoretical calculation or, or an equation where you're able to plug that in, and that's a really practical guide around how you get individualization. And an interesting note there in a couple of surgical papers, they also looked at ways of they gave the limb circumference a, an index number and they basically created a similar kind of equation where based upon the limb circumference, it had a, like a tissue index and then you multiplied it into their equation to have a theoretical occlusion pressure. And they actually compared the results of a Doppler ultrasound, um, getting occlusion uh, and then versus the, um, the bloodless so they're operating on the knees, like what was the type of environment they're looking at? And by using the limb circumference and the Doppler, the, the, the surgeons were blinded by the methodology. They couldn't tell the difference between the two. So it was just as effective in terms of the, the amount of occlusion. And also, but as you could imagine, because you're just taking circumferences, it's a lot quicker. Um, so... Yeah, you have your your top end where you'll you'll have definitely have a group of people where you say no, it has to be Doppler ultrasound, and look, totally respect that. Um, I go down that more of a practical. I want something that's quick, reproducible, has a high level of safety to it. Still, I think that's really important. Um, so I'll use limb circumferences, and there's a lot of research out there in terms of when you start to look at all the information guides on if you have a limb circumference around this kind of um, 
diameter, it should be around this. So I cross-reference a lot of that. Uh, and then the other one is practical BFR, where that's the one where you'll you'll just use a, a lifting strap or a, you know knee bands and you just wrap it around, go for an RP of seven out of ten. And there's actually really a lot of good research out there showing the effect, effectiveness of that. So back to the first two. So we've calculated, so whether it's using ultrasound or whether it's using um, a limb circumference, so that's total occlusion. So then they then talk about training at around 50 to 80% of your limb occlusion pressure or total occlusion pressure. They don't want you to go to total occlusion because that's deemed to be unsafe and, and that's fair enough. So 50 to 80%, but that's then also dependent on the width of the cuff that you use. So a wider cuff disperses the pressure over a greater area. So you can use a lower percentage, so more around that 50%. So it, you take um, my cuff, for example, it's about 10 and a half centimetres. I think a lot of the um, the uh, Delphi systems are a little bit wider as well. I'm not quite sure what percentage they use versus uh, say Katsu is really thin. Um, the UK occlusion cuff, I think is, is quite thin as well. So you, because it's a, a smaller surface area, you need to you need to multiply it by a higher number. So you would go more towards that eighty percent. So, for example, my upper body cuffs that I use are thinner. I use eighty percent. Now, your cross check with this: How do you know that this number is safe? It's a great question. So, I've never seen this bit in BFR literature, but this is Katsu literature. So they talk about capillary refill time. And a great way of telling that, so, oh, actually, the first one is probably skin color. So, uh, like a nice reddish look is is a good color. If it starts to turn uh, a blue, a purpley blue, depending on if you're pale skinned, of course, it's slightly different. <laughs> um, no, to me. <laughs> come to Australia, get your tan, it'll be totally different. <laughs> so, so, you'll actually see, see your limb. And so, the two places you check is your palm on the meat on your thumb. And if you're doing lower body work on your VMO is the other place as well. So when you have the, the partial occlusion, let's just take the upper body now because I've got my arm up there. Um, you, the, the limb, you start get the intracellular swelling. So you're getting the pump and the limb, you have a pooling of metabolites and slight pooling of blood. And then you'll see it changing reddish color. And when you press it, what will happen is obviously you're pressing the capillaries and then you're pushing it out, and then it's capillary refill time. So how long does it take for the capillaries to refill? Now, typically around two seconds, two to three seconds, it should come back to normal. The big, the big or not alarm bells or the things is when it starts to take six seconds. Because sometimes if it's colder weather, like in the UK, it may take a little bit longer. If it's really warm weather, it may actually return a little bit quicker. So it's around that two seconds. So if it's six seconds, well, it's obviously not refilling quick enough. So we're looking at skin color. Second one is also we're looking at capillary refill time. So the first time I'm training with, with an athlete or a client, I'm checking that. So I'm making sure that we've got good skin color, good capillary refill time. And I'm actually just asking them questions. How are you feeling? Is it okay? Because they will experience fatigue. This is another simple one is, is that each set you should be fatiguing on, on each set that you're doing. But if you're having excessive amounts of fatigue, I think that's when, once again, that's a checklist to say, well, is the pressure correct? Um, the other thing that I do, and this is more of a personal thing, because I think about 
I spoke about earlier about, I guess, you want to ensure that the person has a positive experience. It's like the first time we're in the gym and we start to do some German 10 by 10. You probably just don't throw them in the deep end. So I would calculate their pressure. Let's just say it comes out at 160 on the lower body now. And I would do two things. Firstly, in the in the katsu world, they do, uh, it's called joatsu, which is a, um, it's a, um, it's like a warm-up protocol where what they do is they prepare the vasculature for the upcoming pressure. So it's a good warm-up. So what they do in, in katsu, they, they talk about units. So units is the same as millimeters of mercury. So it's rocket science at its best. But um, what they'll do is, is they'll do four, four warm-up cycles, 40 seconds on, so they'll inflate it. And the, but what they'll do is they'll they'll drop it by about 40 mils of mercury. So we'll start at uh, 130, inflate it for 40 seconds, deflate it for 20, inflate it for 40, deflate it for 20. 130, 140, 150, 160. And that just, as I said, prepares the vascular. And I think that's really smart what cats are do because sometimes when you might have a little bit of tightness in your limbs or you might be a little bit cold still, that initial pressure can be, can be quite a lot if you're not used to it. Uh, and the second one is, is, and this is just my my own methodology, is I'll actually start you at 20 mils of mercury under prescribed uh, your prescribed pressure because it's a guide, 50 to 80%. They haven't said it has to be exactly this because there's so many factors to take into consideration. So first time I see you, I'll start you at 140 mils of mercury and rather than going for continuous, so there's two ways of using cuffs is is inflating it for continuous for the whole amount of time which is ideal because we want to have that increase of metabolites from our training or there's intermittent so when we look at peer-reviewed research three sets of 15 intermittent so it's train for 15 reps deflate during your rest periods and reinflate thereafter has shown to be effective but so has uh, the 75 rep protocol where you do a set of 30 and then three sets of 15 holding continuous pressure. Now, with the group that did three sets of 15 intermittent pressure, would their response be greater? Well, we'll never know that, unfortunately. So when I see that both have a really good response, and I want you as an athlete to have a really good response, the first time I'll do is I'll start you at 140, and I'll I'll inflate it, and I'll be checking capillary refill time. I'll be looking at limb color, I'll be asking you how you're feeling. I'll get you to do your set. Now, if you're a well-trained athlete, I might let you do two sets. And I say, just deflate it in between your set. Just rest, reinflate, let's go again. And typically, the responses that you would normally have, such as you know, for decreasing joint pain and so forth, they'll actually still experience all these really cool side effects as a result of using the cuffs. And then each week, what I'm going to do is I'll go 140, week two, 150, week three, 160, and then I'll work to keep it on continuously. Uh, um, so that's, I guess, how I'd walk it through. And I, I think the other stuff that I did really go through in terms of some other basic safety rules was is that um, time. So where we're looking at total time to wear them on our limbs, arms typically in one hit is 15 minutes and in the lower body is 20. Now, I have a lot of athletes and also myself where I'll wear them for 20 minutes at a time, but I'll do my first block of exercises. So, you know, we, we normally put our program together. We'll do our warm-up. 
we'll do our main exercise and there might be like two blocks. So I'll exercise, I'm doing legs day, I'll squat and I'm going to do a single leg exercise and I'm going to go and then do my ancillary hamstring and calf work to keep Alex Natira nice and happy. I'm doing all that kind of work. And so, but what I would do is, is after I finished my first block of exercises, I deflate, deflate the cuffs, I pull the equipment away, go around, set my next equipment up. If I need it for the next exercise, I'll reinflate it. If I don't, I'll put them away. And then I might need to bring them in right at the end when I'm doing all my um, hamstring work and my calf Achilles work as well. Before we go, is that is that for any sorry? Is that for any reason, Chris? Just just purely comfort, just to reduce the amount of time, so you can then reuse later on. What's the what's the reason for for, for deflating during that rest period? I just just for me, it's just to keep within that fifteen to twenty minute. Time, yeah. time guide so it's a high level i like to think i'm a pretty practical guy at the end of the day so a high level practicality so you're going to be hitting around 20 minutes anyway so your miles are deflated and also i'd like to keep it on for long periods of time as um, we want to ensure a high level of safety um, you're going to be getting a great response anyway so i'd rather keep you going well for the whole session why was it set at 15 to 20 minutes maybe someone else may know but i don't know why that was set but um I definitely know, like, keeping it on full for the whole 40 minutes is, is hard going. I've done it before. Yeah. I've done some crazy stuff. But um, <laughs> before we move on, in terms of, like, sort of like basic safety rules as well, so we, we, we've hit on it all over the place, but um, avoid occlusion, excessive pressure. Don't, uh, obviously, I spoke about time. Um, that you have it on and also don't inflate upper and lower body at the same time. So if you're ever doing training, okay. take them off uh, and then, then change it as well. In the katsu world, they talk about not to wear it directly on the skin and, and I have athletes that wear it directly on the skin. My understanding around that, and this is I think the reason why the difference between using a pneumatic cuff and you've seen some of those straps where they just Basically, it's like a tourniquet and strap it. What you want to do is you want to create an even pressure on the limb the whole way around. If you have a strap which has one point where you pull it, it'll have potentially could have a pinching of the skin and could have an uneven occlusion. So it, you actually don't get the, the proper occlusion um, of the vasculature and, and that comes just from the katsu world and and i can actually sort of um see how that has a high level of performance but look at the same time there's lots of people out there just just yanking with the with the straps and then you know they have really great res results as well but i think that's just that extra layer of safety and with the athletes i work with you know i want to ensure that the pressure they have is a high level of objectivity. So um, my methodology, I actually put it as as a um, study and then we made sure we got ethics for it as well just to like cross-check that my methodology was correct. correct. Um, and that like I have all the checks in place. So it, it's a little bit over top, but, you know, if something does go wrong, um, you know, I want to make sure that, that the protocols in place are as safe as they possibly can be. Next little bit, and you mentioned it, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned it right at the start, which was maybe some of the, the newer research or the the um, coaches around the world doing similar things with conditioning on, the, on the, the sprinting side. Why would anyone do that? What what adaptations are they looking for? 
And if, have you got any recommendations if people did want to include that in the, the more conditioning side of strength and conditioning? Yeah, there's been a, a couple of studies there. And the issue with this study, so there's, there's one study, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, so they, they did um, sprinting in BFR, they did six 100 meters at 60 to 70% of their maximum speed. So they timed it for 100 meters. And then they did for six weeks, twice a week, they would run six 100s and they would have people at, I think, two or, th- two sp- two or three spaces along, you know, just calling out times to make sure they, they keep the same speed. At this point, they used elastic knee wraps and to get their BFR, which kind of makes sense because if you don't have a detachable pump, you know, you can't run with them on. They had continuous pressure. Now, in the BFR group, they, they improved by 0.38 seconds versus the control group, which was an improvement of 0.16. You had a slight increase in quad cross-sectional area, 1.5% uh, versus 0.1. And the rate of force development of the leg press improved 6%. However, you know, they were like 12 second, 100 meter runners. They weren't, they weren't fast. They weren't doing strength training. So there was, there's a lot of things in there that we can't get the right cohort of athletes. But saying that in um, – so when you're doing more tempo running um, and you're looking like how do you maximize – I have a conversation with a couple of track and field athletes. When you're doing low-intensity work, typically you need to do it for more of a recovery-type aspect. But if you're trying to maximize a physiological response, how could we potentially do that, which is hard to do at low intensities? And this is where the whole – world of bfr is advantageous is that at low intensities we can still increase strength speed size and so forth so rather than doing our tempo because it's good recovery because it is good recovery and sometimes you know is tempo run a little quick that's always a question i think some coaches talk about in in some spaces but how can we improve the response of our athletes um so you know if we can be doing tempo running and i say well you could be doing this to improve some of your strength. You could be doing this potentially to increase some of your uh, VO2. So if you think about more like team sports as opposed to track and field, you then also add into athletes who um, are pretty banged up after the game. So you've come off a game and then you got to do some run-throughs and you have limited preparation time in the week. It's all about playing the game, recovering and preparing for your next game. So how can you try and maintain some sort of physiological qualities during the week it is virtually hard, well, it's really hard to do um, in, in most team sports or most week-to-week sports. And it's, you add the combative factor of sports like rugby union, uh, rugby league and so forth where the guys are sore. You then add the capacity of the decrease in joint and tendon pain the athletes feel like they actually want to run. They get a muscular benefit and they're actually getting a cardiovascular benefit as well. Uh, to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. But it's, you know, you haven't got the best teams in the world doing it. And until the best teams in the world are doing it, no one's going to do it. With, with, pressures, with pressures, Chris, on that, would that be a similar situation with the Strength side, or is the is the pressure recommendation different in this context? More from a practical viewpoint, I always go about twenty mils less than my strength okay. training. I read a paper somewhere, and I can't remember 
the reason as to why they actually spoke about lowering it. But when you read, so this sprinting study was really interesting. It was uh, it was a seven out of ten. So they kept it at the same higher pressure. But I know doing uh, interval work on the bike personally, uh, I hate aerobic work. But I've done, I hate anything that's cardiovascular driven. But uh, I had an athlete that was doing rehab and I said, I'm going to ride with you. So we did high intensity repeat efforts on the watt bike with them on. But we had to drop it down about 20 mils of mercury. It was just way too hard to hold that pressure. Also with that, if you want to do high intensity work more from a personal experience, you need a minimum of a one-to-one work to rest ratio. So you can't do 20 on 10 off. That's not enough recovery time. So you need a uh, you know, minimum of one-to-one. You can even push it out a little bit further as well. So don't be afraid of doing that because it is, it is just extremely difficult. Even, the, even there was like a low-intensity cycling study. It was just a four-week study. And this is where this fits in nicely with this whole, I'm going to talk about a cycling study and I'm going to talk about this rowing study because I think rowing is really interesting because it's like, well, you know, cycling is easy. Um, walking, there's some walking studies. So they were just doing five, they did, uh, over four weeks, they did um, five reps. So you go two minutes on, one minute off at 30% of your max power, which is about 40% of VO2 max. So it's pretty cruisy, like you're just turning your legs over. Um, I kept the pressure up really high on that. And, and by the end of two minutes, it's screaming. You release it for a minute. Uh, and you do that for five reps. So it's about 33 minutes worth of work. And then each week you add an extra rep. So by week four, you do uh, eight reps. Uh, and, and they had improvements in VO2 power and also strength. Where does that fit in? So when you have athletes that are coming off injuries and you say, just hop on a bike and turn your legs over. I do know I've seen athletes do this and they go, oh, I'm just turning our legs over because the physio told me to. And you can see they've just got no engagement. I've stuck the cuffs on. They're going, oh, I feel like I've got something out of the session. So it's that psychophysiological benefit as well that I feel like I've got something out of it. But research is showing that we're actually um, getting some sort of physiological benefit as opposed to having this period of time of having to wait until we can do some higher intensity work as well. The, the rowing study, which was was a recent one, is um, I've got to actually read it here. They did it um, three times a week, and it was just all their low intensity work. So it corresponded to under a blood lactate concentration around two mils, two millimoles per liter, uh, and it was only used for two 10 minute sessions with a 10 minute break. And that was using high, high um, level athletes, and it was a practical BFR. And they used VO2 max improved in the BFR group 9%, whereas the control group only improved 2.5. Uh, the squat was pretty much no change. And, and because they were a, a more elite athletes who had a minimum of eight years of training age, they said, well, because they'd actually had, they were doing the same weights, they didn't really expect to see a major change. So then, where does that fit in? Is then you start to then think about, when you have athletes doing their junk miles or their low intensity threshold work, because that's what they do. How can you, once again, as I said earlier, how can you maximize the physiological benefit of doing that kind of activity where you're still keeping it low intensity, but we want to get some sort of bang for buck, I guess is probably a simplified version of, of putting it forward. Mm -hmm. 
Super, super interesting. I mean, you've, we've, we've talked about, or you've talked about um, tendons and, <clears throat> excuse me, and the Achilles. When it comes to another aspect or something that people may come across with uh, in the in the rehab, bone healing, that's something that you've spoke about in your podcast and, and, and well, both of your podcasts, I think. What potential benefits can we gain from BFR in that situation? Yeah, this one's, uh, it, it's more mechanistic probably and, and trying to, because this is all N of one and in, in animal studies, it's easy to do this because I've actually done it with animals that have broken two limbs and they've cuffed one and haven't cuffed the other and they found that the healing is better in it. Um, so when we look at the traditional rationale for improving bone, you know, the stimulus has to be dynamic, you know, short loading periods, you know, we need, we need load over time. So what they're actually saying is, is that when you have improved bone healing, you have different mechanisms. One is you have this increase in intramedullary pressure and interstitial fluid, so IMP, and then this IMP describes the, the ineosseous pressure within the bone and the fluid environment. And in particular, in these animal studies, they've shown that the occlusion has increased this IMP, intramedullary pressure, and which has then corresponded to improvements in tibial bone, mineral density, and also just uh, elements of new endosteal bone formation as well. So they've shown in animal studies that, that these markers or this mechanism has been shown to um, have a positive response. Another way is around a pathway activation is around um, the marker called bone alkaline phosphatase. And you have these two pathways. Um, I've actually got to read this. HIF, VG, VGF, <laughs> I'm not that smart. Um, and, and with this in here, it, it supports the coupling of for the bone formation and also formations of microblood vessels and bone tissue. And in particular, in this pathway activation of this HIF, the major stimulus is actually low oxygen hypoxia. So you're actually creating a localized hypoxic environment. So essentially, a lot of these elements in terms of bone formation or even in terms of tendons are probably more so um, pain probably when we talk about pain, like, you know, the mechanisms, mechanisms behind it, we try and find diff different pathways that potentially get activated. It's just like when we, um, the different pathways or when we do high-low strength training, you know, we know what they are and, and they get released when we're doing strength training. So in terms of the rationale, in terms of improving bone, they've actually been shown that this pathway activation, bone alkaline phosphatase, and also increases in intramedullary pressure. So then when we look at different studies, so well, in animal studies, we've seen this. When we look in actual studies, so in terms of human studies, if we look at walking, so there's one study where they had a three-week training intervention twice a day. That's a cool thing about BFR. You can do high-frequency training six days a week, so quite a lot of training because the mechanical stress or the load is really low. And they were just five two-minute bouts. And what they actually found here is just by walking twice a day, six days a week, for five two-minute bouts, that increases in this BAP, so bone-specific alkaline phosphatase, which reflects osteoblastic activity. In other words, this marker is a proxy marker for bone formation. So we, we know what markers 
uh, related to bone formation. And then we've been able to then show different activities with BFR and walking. And we also know that, well, in studies, that walking at 50 metres per minute has actually been shown to increase quad, quad cross-sectional area and also strength. Now, this is not in well-trained athletes, but if you think about athletes who are coming back from injuries, uh, I, I actually like doing a lot of walking programs. You just get them on the treadmill and you get them walking. So you actually know you're doing some good stuff for their bones. Uh, you can great stuff for their strength as well. And also stuff for um, just their um, joints and tendons and so forth and pain. And similar in, in strength training as well, when they showed that um, in lower leg, when you did leg extension and leg press, comparing uh, high intensity, three by eight, around 80% of RM, which is what we would traditionally do, that high loading stuff versus the BFR 75 rep protocol at 20% of RM. They also had that same increase in that those markers of BAP. So that's um, that bone specific alkaline phosphatase. So for me, don't have to remember what these markers are, but the markers are reflective of the different responses. And we've just seen that using it in walking, but also in strength training, that these markers get um, released. So my point is always is that, you know, if we're coming back from a stress fracture or, 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 or just a, a stress fracture, you know, we can't load them heavy anyway. So... Why, why aren't we using it on the bike, Leg you know, sitting down, leg extensions, and, and they're getting a really good effect. So then when they take the and, – and then, a, you know, you, you say you know, well, you're able to hold the size of their, their muscles, their muscle hypertrophy, and also just pain as well. So when they actually start walking again, they actually feel a lot better if we're talking about a, a lower body stress fracture. So their first few movements as they come out of the boot – they're a much better stage than where they were if they weren't going to use it. Superb. There's so much information. I need to have a little play around with this. I, I, I thought that after speaking to Stephen, but it's, it's on my list of, of things to have a little play around with. But so much information, really do appreciate it. And thank you for giving up um, some of your Sunday night. But Chris, if people want to get in touch with you or get to know more about your system, Where's the best place for people to um, to get in touch? I put a load of information more on, if you're an Instagram fan, uh, at Chris Gavilio, that's C-H-R-I-S, Gavilio, G-A-V-I-G-L-I-O. And, and that's, I have lots of videos on how-tos because I think it's important to, for me to demystify how you use BFR. Uh, to, you know, it's not about just using them for bicep curls. Uh, it's, it's, you know, how can you use them after injuries and how can you use it for performance? Uh, and so forth. Uh, I have a website. It's sportsrehab.com.au. So if you're into sports or rehab, that's where you go to. And also I have a YouTube channel. So if you're more of a YouTube fan, it's Sports Rehab Oz. That's AUS for Australia. And pretty much I share the content amongst that. I have a podcast as well called BFR Radio, where I talk about all things BFR. So I review articles. So if you want something specific, I have guests come on that actually I've actually had some guests recently where firstly I interviewed them, but some people actually have questions and some really cool questions. Like I had a gentleman who is coming back from a shoulder reconstruction and he's got Haglund's deformity in both ankles. So how does he combine both of them pre and post surgery for a really positive outcome? So we're looking at both things. So I've actually started to try and turn your questions into a podcast. So 
you get something out of it and there might be someone exactly like you who's going through something very similar. So you're able to get something out of it as well as a listener. There's lots of information out there because I just, you know, for me, it's about trying to demystify the world of BFR. Once again, it's a tool in a toolbox. Um, if you're an athlete, you still want to be aspiring towards that high load lifting. But if you can't, you can use it smartly to 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 put you in a, in a better situation than where you would be if you didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And the Snippets podcast as well? Yeah, Snippet Sports Science podcast as well. So I've got another uh, colleague, Jared, that we go on and we review sports science articles, which for me, once again, is like how, how can we continually, or myself, how can I continually keep reading journal articles that firstly interest us, but then has, I guess, application to our cohort, you know, it's, it's SNC related. Uh, and, and we'd sometimes get listeners to ask us different questions and can we talk about a uh, subject on whatever. So we, we'll try and research, which is quite interesting as well to go outside our comfort zone. Yeah, I can imagine. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, man. Like I said, thank you for giving up your Sunday, well, an hour and a half your Sunday evening to have a chat. And it's, uh, it's great to finally catch up and speak face to face. Well, online face-to-face. <laughs> Time flew and, and, and uh, you know, I, I felt like I really just scratched the surface. There was so much that we just didn't talk about. You know, if, if you're on this podcast, you wanted to know about mechanisms as to why it works. We didn't even go into that. We really, I think we just got into the nuts and bolts. Um, yeah. You know, that's actually on my YouTube channel. Um, so you can go and listen to that or, you know, if, if there's a if there's a big drive from everyone out there, they want to learn something specific on how they used it or different different mm-hmm. case studies. So, you know, I've used it with a lot of elite athletes, a lot of Olympians um, and, and a lot of gen pop as well. Um, definitely get a hold of Rob and, you know, I'd be happy to come back on because, you know, for me, once again, it's it's about ensuring that we get educated correctly about this training tool. Of course, absolutely. I'll link to all the stuff that the Instagram, the YouTube, the website, and and the podcast got loads going. Got loads going. I don't know how you juggle it, but yeah, fantastic, great stuff. Thank you very much, Chris. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 333 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Chris. So big thanks to Chris for bringing all his knowledge and experience and talking to us about blood flow restriction training. I got tons from it and I'm sure you did as well. So big thanks to Chris for that. Also huge thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I always, always appreciate their support. So I've got a, a part one and a part two next week with a really, really interesting guest, and I mean really, really interesting guest. So make sure you check that out next week. But two-parter, absolute gold with someone that's worked at the highest, highest level for a number of, of years. So really interesting Uh, two-parter coming up next week. So thanks for tuning in and I will chat to you then.